Sorry for the delay. My mask got caught on my microphone. Now you can laugh. Okay, no, whatever. Guys, good morning again. Good to see you guys. If you're new or visiting, my name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. If you haven't opened up your Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 4, okay? We're going to get into this right away, but I, I want to start with uh, sharing a few words from a, a man named Chuck Colson, all right? You may or may not have heard of Chuck Colson. He was an attorney, and he was a political advisor to President uh, Richard Nixon. He was involved in like the Watergate scandal of, of the 70s. He, as a result, uh, went to prison. But Colson became a Christian, and upon doing that, he actually started uh, a ministry called Prison Fellowship. And, and throughout the rest of his life, I believe he died in 2012, right around there, um, he did much for the cause of, of Christ. Many people in the penitentiaries and the prisons came to know Jesus because of the ministry that Chuck Colson started. But I want to start our study of this section of James, all right, by reading some of the words that he wrote in regards to the United Nations. All right, and you're like, what does that have to do? Hopefully it'll make sense, but just follow me, okay? This is what he writes in regards to the United Nations, okay? The United Nations complex sits on 16 acres of New York City's choicest real estate bordering the East River and Manhattan. The lean, immense secretariat building rises into the sky, the sun reflecting off its window walls. Bright flags of the nations of the world fly in the breezes coming off of the river. The most prominent is the blue and white UN flag with its two white reeds of olive branches surrounding the world. A visitor is immediately struck by the grandeur of the building, stirred by the sight of the dignitary stepping out of black limousines to cross the massive plaza. He realizes that if this is a place that represents the powers of the world, one might well want to see the place of worship where the nations bow before the one under whose rule they govern. As he enters the building, the informational personnel are confused at his inquiry to see the chapel. The chapel, they say, we, we don't have a chapel. If there is one, I believe it's across the street. So the visitor darts across the street, dodging New York's taxis, and successfully arrives at the opposite building's security clearance desk. Well, there is a chapel here, responds the officer, but it's not associated with the UN. He thumbs through the directory and says, okay, here, I see it, it's all right here. It's across the street, tell them that you're looking for the meditation room. Again, the visitor dashes across the pavement. An attendant tells him that the room is not open to the public. It's, not, it's a non-essential area, and there has been a personnel cutback. But a security guard escorts the visitor through the long, crowded hallways and swinging glass doors, and there is a pervasive sense of weighty matters being discussed and plans being made throughout the building in the noble pursuit of world peace and prosperity. The guide pauses at an unmarked door. He unlocks it and gingerly pushes it open. The small room is devoid of people or decoration. The walls are stark white. There are no windows. A few wicker stools surround a large square rock at the center of the room. It's very quiet, but there is no altar, there's no rug, vase, candle, or symbol of any type of religious worship. Lights in the ceilings create bright spots of illumination on the front wall. One focuses on a piece of modern art, steel squares and ovals. Beyond the abstract shapes, there is nothing in those other bright circles of light. They are focused on a void. And it is in that void that the visitor suddenly sees the soul of the United Nations. Because these are the words of, of Chuck Colson as he kind of like underscores the view of God that lies at the heart of our secular world. 
right, that the nations have, have come together to make plans for, for peace and prosperity for the nations, but they do so without any reference, acknowledgement, or reverence to God, that they make these plans, they make these policies with the quotable atheistic axiom in their mind from the great Frederick Nietzsche that says, God is dead. We killed him. And this is how much of the world lives, that God simply is not part of daily life. And guys, we can see this so clearly as we watch our nation today. I mean, we're, we're just got a front row seat of how our nation, how our world is dealing with the uncertain times that we're in. And our culture kind of just embraces this view that we are just like completely independent from God. And it's not just our culture, right? It'd be so easy just to throw stones at our, our culture. Guys, the sad reality is that many Christians quietly embrace this posture. Because many Christians today will, will come to a place like this and we will celebrate the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, but we will leave this place and we will go out into the daily stuff of life and we will live in a way that we are proclaiming that Jesus is still dead, that he's still in the tomb. There's a pastor named Kent Hughes and he says it like this, many Christians attend church, marry, choose their careers, have kids, buy and sell homes, spend their money, expand their financial portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without any substantial reference to the will of God for their lives. Guys, we're just jumping in, okay? I know it's, sometimes we start off with like an introduction and it's like, oh, happy fun, laugh. We're just, just jumped right in, okay? And I want you to know, like, as you hear like the intensity of this passage, I mean, this is like the nature of, of James, right? I just want you to know that every time I get up here and I, and I teach the Bible, I do so with a mirror right in front of me. All right, so like this intensity that you're hearing from James and maybe hearing from me is actually coming right back to me that I'm preaching to myself, I'm hearing God talk to me this morning. But many Christians never seriously pray about God's will for their lives, for their plans, their careers, their, their money, but that we decide internally and personally what we are gonna do with our lives, our aspirations, and our future. And in this, guys, there's just really just like this, this great sense of pride where we attempt to really be the quote-unquote God of our own lives. And I share all that to say this. This is what James is going to talk to us today about in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4, which we just heard read. That he's going to talk to us about how to see your life. This is what James is going to give. How do we see our lives? And just as James has been doing through this entire book that we've been studying, he's going to give us some really practical things. And in these few short verses, he's just going to get right to the point and give us some really practical things to walk out of here with, understanding more about who we are and who God is. And we talk about this. As he talks about how to see our lives, James is ultimately going to show us that real faith produces genuine humility. Right? And in these verses, James deals with our, our tendency to kind of just like place God outside of like the everyday stuff of our lives and where we just presume and boast in ourselves and, and what we can do. And the first thing that he's going to teach us about life is this. If you're a note taker, you can write this down, is that life is uncertain. Look what he says in verse 13. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. All right, so James is, is likely addressing business people here who are, who are making these plans to just turn a profit, okay? This is just like good business sense, okay? Nothing, nothing big here. 
But the lessons that he's going to teach them really apply to every single one of us in any situation of our lives that requires us to make plans. And so let me just start off by asking you, how many planners in here? A show of hands. Any, any planners? Like you have a calendar, like you have to-do list, you have like a ton of stuff, like what are you doing next week, next year? You got it all. You got the 2023 calendar already filled out, right? We've got some planners. Now here's the question. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to have a plan? Is it sin to have a plan? Yes or no? No. Right? The Bible talks about planning a lot. For example, if you go to the book of Proverbs, it talks a ton about how wise it is to seek good counsel and to make a wise plan. I mean, it's not a problem to have a plan, to have things organized in your life, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why you're here, right? You had a plan, you executed it, you woke up, you came here on time, congratulations, good job, happy to see you, right? It's not wrong. It's not wrong to have a plan. It's not sin to have a vision for your life and to be organized. And so if that's not the issue, then what is the problem? And here's what James is gonna get at rather quickly. The problem is, is that there is a real danger in our planning where we can kind of adapt and adopt, rather, an attitude that is extremely ungodly and really arrogant. Look at verse 14. He says, you make these plans, what? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is the issue, that we don't know what the future holds. And go down to verse 15, instead, you ought to say, instead of making all these plans yourself and what you think you're going to do, instead, this is what you should say, if the Lord wills. I want you to underline that in your Bible. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Okay, so these, these merchants that James is, a, is addressing are, are planning their lives with, with rather a lot of, of arrogance. They're they're thinking that they're in complete control, and it appears that these people are, are just rather proud. They're, they're confident in their ability. They, they have this high view of themselves, like, I can get things done. Like, I can do things on my own. I'm a driver. I'm a high-functioning person. My, I have a monster capacity. I can get stuff done. Sound like any of us? Am I, the, am I the only one? Right? Like, you can look at yourself and just have this high view of, like, man, I can get a lot of stuff done, like, on my own. I can do this. You just need to know that about me, Okay? But I talk to like college students and, and young professionals all the time, and they, they lay out their, their 5, 10, 20, 30-year plan for, for retirement and how they're just going to be totally stable, totally secure in just a few years. I just got to execute these couple things, and then I'm going to be good. Does that sound like anybody? I mean, your 401k, your Roth IRA, they're, they're set like in just a few years. In 2050, you're going to be in the Poconos, and I don't know where the po- I don't know what the Poconos are. I just right, but you're going to be somewhere, and it's going to be great. And as James is hearing these people talking like this, he's kind of like, "Okay, guys, pump the hold up, hold up." Okay, and if you look back to verse 13, look at well, look what he says. He says, "Come now, you who say." All right, this is like the equivalent of him being like, "Okay, slow down, Sparky." All right, easy, fella. Okay, he's he's kind of being really snarky here. And he says, wow, you are like incredibly gifted. You are a driver. Are you an extrovert? Like, wow, you have great plans. But what about the Lord? He's saying, where is God in all of these plans? Have you sought his will for your life? And James is highlighting the reality that many people Christians, right? I mean, this is who he's writing to. He's, he's talking to us, Doxa. 
Many of us, we, we play God over our own lives. That we, we imagine ourselves as kind of like the, the final authority over our lives and we kind of just like sequester God into his own little compartment in our lives. And we keep the rest of our life to ourselves. And we'll go, when, when things get really hard in our life and when things get really out of control, we'll go to this little compartment that we've put God in and we'll open it up and we'll pray and we'll ask him for help. But many of us, we, we do this. Now, you know, if I said, raise a hand, who does this? None of us are going to readily be like, yep, I banish God to the back room of my life just like the meditation room in the UN, right? We're not going to do that, right? But many of us, we assign God's sovereignty over like certain religious tasks, but we keep the daily stuff of our lives to ourselves. That God, for, for many people, becomes kind of like a, a, a religious boss on on faith and in moral issues, but we will handle things on our own that deal with like our finances, our careers, our families, our, our futures, our, our plans. And at the core of this false philosophy, guys, is the idea that we are the masters of our own lives and we are completely self-reliant. And I need you to see this, okay? The problem is not when we have a vision, a dream, an aspiration, a plan for our lives. The problem is, is when that plan does not include the Lord. The problem is when our plans are, are out of a sense of arrogance and not out of humility. It's seeking our will and not seeking God's will. This is the problem that James is hitting here. And that's why he says, look at verse 15 again. Instead, you ought to say, what? The Lord wills. And this is so big. Because we, ha we have to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean when James says, like, to consider this idea, if the Lord wills? Because here's the truth, like, this can easily become like another Christian cliche, another weird Christian slogan that we have. And we have enough of those, right? I mean, we could easily just take this slogan and just tack it onto any sentence that we talk and be like, okay, well, I did what James said, right? And maybe you know Christians like this, right? That they have this kind of cliche, this slogan in their, their repertoire of things that they say. It's like you got plans for the weekends with your friends, and they say, okay, you're going to pick me up tomorrow morning, and we're going to go. Yep, if the Lord wills, right? And you're like, okay, well, are you going to be there or not? Well, Lord willing, Lord willing, I'm not going to smack you right now. Are you going to be there, right? It's one of those things, right? It can be easily become one of these like little weird things that Christians say and do, and we do a lot of them. But this, guys, is not meant to be a cliche but a conviction, okay? A conviction. And to say, if the Lord wills, it's saying that God is sovereign. That the godly response is to plan our lives in a way that we recognize and remember that we are not the ones ultimately in control. And all that we plan and conceive is really subject to the will of God who is in control of everything, even our, our lives that everything is in the hands of God. It says, Proverbs 16, 9 puts it, listen to this, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establish, establishes their steps. Okay, so, so when James is, is saying, if the Lord wills, it means that we're, we say like, okay, I've, I've sought God on this, I've, I've prayed, I've gotten wise counsel, I really believe to my best understanding that this is God's will, that God's direction, that this is what he has for me to do. And I, and I could be wrong. And so God is, is welcome to kind of come into my circumstances and alter that decision because I ultimately know that his will is more glorious for him and good for me. 
This is what it means, the, the, the Lord's will. And, and, I, and I, as I thought about this this week, I mean, even in this building that we're sitting in, like that we've had for, I don't know, a couple months, like, this is the story of, of this building. A lot of you were around when we got this. We were a one-year-old church plant when this opportunity to have a facility dropped in our laps, right? And I remember my gut reaction was to say, no way. I remember that. I remember, this is ridiculous. No. Why, who buys a trampoline park, right? But it was just like, no. And I remember just like being like, okay, well, we should probably just pray. And there were months sitting in that parking lot on my way to the gym every morning, just sitting here being like, God, what is your will for this? This makes no sense. And we sought counsel of wise, godly people in the business world. And like, is this feasible? Is this wise? Like, what are we, like, what are we to do? And you remember there was the first meeting that we had, a brief members meeting after a service where we invited you to stay. And we said, hey guys, this is crazy. Here's the opportunity. We, we feel like God is pushing us in this direction. And so we're going to take a step forward and see what happens. And if it's not, we'll redirect. Guys, this is, this is the story. This is how we approach life. If the Lord wills. And verse 15 is really the key to verses 13 and 14. If the Lord wills, that the decisions and the plans we have for the future, they should be based on submission to God's will, not ours. It's this idea of a life that's completely dependent and has this dependency in prayer, which everything is taken before God and in submission to him and his will. And James, as it relates to this, he puts his finger on a really uncomfortable truth that relates to every single one of us. What does he say? We don't know what the future holds, right? I mean, we have no idea. As Christians, we, we know where we're gonna be in like a million years, we're gonna be in the hands of God, just as he said we would, but we don't know what will happen tomorrow. We're kind of like walking through life in the dark, like we, we don't know what tomorrow holds, and this is something that, I mean, at least I can speak for myself, like I don't like to think about this. Anybody with me? Like I, I don't like to think about like, I don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow, because why, what happens? It makes us realize that control is a complete illusion. Like, we don't have control. We're not in control. And because we don't like to think about it and remind it of it, like, we, we, tend to, we tend to just push it out of the way. But we don't know what's happening around us. We, the big stuff or the small stuff. Like, you know, is the weather going to be nice on the vacation that I, I planned, I saved for, and I paid for? Like, will, will, will this be the year that I lose my job? I mean, will I wake up tomorrow? Like, is this going to be the year that I die? Because we, we just don't know. Only God knows. And because this is like so unsettling, we, we oftentimes just try and like push it aside and act like we're in control. And our default view tends to be one that where we plan something, it will happen. But James forces us to, to come to this realization that, that we don't know what will happen with the future. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And because of this, James says it doesn't make any sense, Christian. It doesn't make any sense to plan your life apart from God. Because God is the only one that knows what tomorrow brings. And so we would do well, we would be wise to consult him and his will for our life. And if you think about what these people are doing that he's talking to, 
what they've essentially done in their lives is what many people do today, is they've built like a, a huge wall, a huge barrier between their relationship with God and their relationship with everything else. Right, and this is what so many people do today. Like today, you will hear people say, well, that's religion. That's, that's like your, your faith, and that shouldn't affect your business. That shouldn't affect politics. It shouldn't affect sexuality. It shouldn't affect morality. That's like religion and your faith. It shouldn't be in the public arena at all. That's, that's private. Keep it over there. But as Christians, we, we say, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way it works because our relationship with Jesus affects everything. If you think about our, our life, it's like a, a, a bike wheel, right? You have all these spokes, right? You have your career, your family, your money, your aspirations, your vacations, like all these different spokes, and they should be anchored into the hub, which is God. He's at the center of everything. And without that, these spokes are just clanging around, making noise and not going anywhere, not making any sense, not working. This is what James is saying, that God is in control of our lives like we're not. It's an illusion to think that we have control. And so our relationship with Jesus, hear this, guys, this, you cannot miss this. Our relationship with Jesus affects everything. It affects how we do business, how we vote, how we behave, how we interact with others, how we see the world, how we spend our money, how we organize our days, how we consider what the priorities of our lives are because we're not sovereign. Jesus is. And so James says to plan your uncertain life without seeking the will of God for your future activities is really just kind of practical atheism. And he's saying don't live your life in the void that is at the heart of the United Nations. That if our planning as Christians is no different than the world around us, you have to ask the question, what does that say about our faith in Jesus? This is what James is asking us to think about. Our plans need to not only like reflect the existence of God's will, but its content too. And so we ask with, with all of our lives and all of our plans and all that we're going to do is what God is, what I'm going to do. Will it bring you glory and good to those around us? If the Lord wills. Let's keep going. The second thing that James teaches us about our lives is it's uncertain, but life is also brief. Verse 14. What is your life? All right? There's a question for you. <laughs> what is your life? Some of you have thought about that and it's driving you nuts, right? You look at the mirror every morning and you're like, who is this person that ruins my life? What is this, right? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In two... 2014, I should know this. All right, in 2014, our first child was born, so I think it was 2014. I'm terrible. Okay, that's so bad. Circa 2014. Thumbs up, Caitlin. Okay, good. Okay, good. So Lily was born in 2014, and some of you, you know my daughter. She's always talking, like always laughing, like always just like nonstop, you know. And even though there's a little kid, that was true of her, and I remember she was getting to the age where she could like hold a banana. So you didn't just have to feed her, but she could hold a banana and like just chew on it and stuff like that. And we were hanging out with some friends and, and we were um, just all talking, having a good time. Lily's laughing, I'm laughing. Everybody is just laughing, having a good time. And then all of a sudden we realized like, 
When it gets quiet in our house, something is going terribly wrong, okay, because of what's happening. And so we didn't hear Lily anymore. And we're like, she's too young to walk away. We look down, and she's laying there like lifeless. And I remember sitting there and being like, what the heck? And she's like turning blue. She took a bite of a banana, was laughing and having a good time, and inhaled it, and it got stuck in her throat. And we're sitting there, and we just froze. And she, literally not moving, eyes rolling back in her head, turning colors. Lisa jumped into action, got it out, took a deep breath. She's okay. I remember in that mo- moment, we're standing there with our friends being like, holy cow. Her life could have been over. Here today, gone. Just like that. Because this is what James is saying. Life is a mist. Here, and then gone. And so if you think about how just in a, in a few months, Madison is going to begin its 17 months of winter, right? And it's going to be really cold. <laughs> Math doesn't line up. Some of you are like, ah, okay. Right? <laughs> but it's really cold. You're, you're bundled up. You go outside and and you exhale a breath, and what happens? Right, your, your cold or your warm breath meets the cold air, and the white puff of vapor appears, stays there for a second, vanishes, gone. James says, this is your life. We don't tend to think of it like that. We tend to think we're gonna be here forever, and we're the most important thing, and the world revolves around us, but James says you're a mist. And this isn't just the story of someone who dies young, right? But this is the story of a relatively long life because it flies by. And the more experienced, older people here can give us a healthy amen to say it goes quickly, right? That's why, like, when you're younger and, like, a crazy grandma comes up and squeezes your cheek and you're like, oh, you're getting so big, it's time flies. And you're like, why does she always say that? And then you get older and now you're doing it to your kids. And you're like, oh, my gosh, right? Time goes so quickly, We are a mist, here for a while, and then gone. And the truth is, guys, death could come to any one of us any day, for we don't know what tomorrow brings, and we are a mist. Now, because this is not James being like super morbid or anything like that. He isn't telling us this truth just to make us squirm and like feel really uncomfortable, but what he's actually doing is he's warning us against the sin of presumption. Again, James is not opposed to planning. He's opposed to planning that leaves out God. He's opposed to planning that is arrogant and self-reliant and doesn't have any reference to divinity or eternity at all, as if we are the masters of our own destinies. He says that you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Your life is a mist and it's uncertain. So how arrogant is it for us to make these big, elaborate future plans without seeking the will of the one who is the author of life and sovereign over everything. So James, he's, he's not opposing these people's plans or their business tactics or anything like that, but their presumption. He's opposing it now because it's not just a bad idea, but because he says it's sin. And James is warning us that when it comes to planning, we can so quickly slip into becoming atheists. 
That's what these people are doing, that their language, their goal setting, their plans are exactly the same as the atheists and the pagan culture around them that God didn't even factor into. It was like God didn't exist as they were making these plans. And to help us grasp this, this is why he makes us think about death. And the reality is, is that we can really hear this and take it one of two ways. This can either be a great discouragement or a great encouragement to, not to waste any time. Because every one of us are going to die and many of us are going to die with a lot of regrets. And here is why this is so important, guys. The world tells us to live like we're going to be here forever. Urging us to make plans, like acquire possessions, work hard to build our portfolio. James tells us to submit to God. He says, don't live your life like you're going to be here forever. Instead, live and plan and work like your life is short and like you don't want to waste the mist that is your life on worldly things that you can't take with you. Doxa, as the family of God, we ought to make our lives the mist that comprises who we are for a short while count for the glory of God and the good of the people around us. This is God's will for our life. The most important thing. If the Lord wills, you will live like a, a really long life, but you don't know. So James says, don't be deceived into thinking that you have plenty of time to live for Jesus or to enjoy your loved ones or to do the things that we know we should do because today is the day that you live for God. Today is that day because you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And if we live in such a way, then no matter when our lives end, we will have fulfilled God's plan for our life. Amen? This is it. This is what James is hitting. And because life is uncertain, because it's a brief miss that will end at some unknown point, the final thing that James teaches us about our lives is this, is that life should be urgent. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And you know, when we, when we think about sin, oftentimes we, we th tend to think about sin as, in terms of like doing things that are wrong. Sins of, of commission, right? So we're told not to steal. If we steal and commit that sin, it's sin, right? We don't lie. We sin and do that. It's a sin of commission. There is also sin of omission. So for example, like as we study in James, if James says that you need to be caring for the needy, and, he, and we say, no, I'm not going to do that, it is sin because we did not do that thing. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. And he's saying, when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's the sin of omission, You're, we're, we're sinning. And he concludes his thought by pointing out two ways that we can stop playing God in our lives that are rooted in humility, which flows from authentic faith, which is the, what the whole point of the book of James is. But look back to verse 17. He says, first, know the right thing to do, and two, start doing it. And so what does this actually look like in reality? All right? Maybe it's this. Maybe you're becoming more and more irregular in your attendance at church or, or connection group, that you're not making a, it a priority to meet with God's people. And maybe you say, like, life is just like, manic right now. Like, I don't have time for, for that. Or maybe you're not spending any amount of time in, in prayer or in the Bible, just like enjoying the presence of, of God. And maybe you just say, like, I just have too many other things, too many other commitments, too many other things to read, like too, many, too much stuff going on that when it all calms down, when I get done with this, I can try and make that a, a priority. 
Or maybe we know deep down that we're not doing what God has asked us to do. Maybe we know that, that we need to get baptized and you're just not doing it. Like maybe you know that you should be giving and being generous and, and caring for the least among us, but you have so many other plans that require your money that you need to build a deck, you need to get a new car, you need to go on this vacation, and you don't have the means to do that right now. And so you say, when I do all those other things, then I'll start doing that. Whatever it is, guys, here it is. It reflects sin in our planning. That we have made something else our priority and we have planned around that because we have not reflected on God's will for our lives. And so we have to ask that introspective question. Listen to this, and I want you to think about this and talk about it with your families and connection groups this week. Is like, am I being driven by what matters most to God or by what matters most to me? Big question. Dangerous question, right? This might cause some uncomfortableness. In, is that a word, uncomfortableness? It's a word, it sounds good. In discomfort, there it is, right? In your life. But to make this like, not just like theological or theoretical, but super helpful, let me just give you the priorities of God for your life. All right, so when you talk about like the will of God for your life, we have like the general will and the general priorities and then like the specific things that are like tailored individually to you. But you can look at like the general priorities of our lives. And I'll share this from, my, from me, talking about my life. My first priority as a man, as a, as a Christian, is to walk with Jesus by faith, empowered by his grace, becoming more and more like him every single day of my life. Romans 8, 29, being conformed to the image of Christ. It's what Jesus says, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is our number one priority for all of us. And so I'll even say this, if there's some of you here, maybe you, you haven't come to Jesus, you, you haven't, you've been around the family of God, you've been around God, but you haven't come to God through faith. Maybe you're tuning in and I love that you're here. I love one of the highest honors I have is to teach you the Bible. And maybe your life just kind of feels like out of whack. And this was my story. And like something's missing. There's like this whole, it's because that first priority of loving God, coming to him through faith in Jesus, you haven't done. This is the biggest thing in your life. And we need, I pray that today would be this day that you hear, oh, I need to do this. You hear from God. And James is saying, well, then do it. My second priority is to love my wife. God to empower me to help care for her, love her, serve her all the days of her life. And I pray that God gives us many, many more to come. My third priority is our kids, Lily and Titus. Because when it comes down to it, dads, I'll speak to you. There's no backup plans for our kids. They get one dad. And if I'm not the dad that is loving them, shaping them, discipling them, pointing them to Jesus, it's just going to lead to a lot of issues. My fourth priority is to be your pastor. It's to teach you the Bible, to, to love and to serve you as, as docs at church. Guys, these are our priorities in order that we see in the scriptures. Write it down. God, spouse, kids, church, job. And what I found in my life in Maybe if you of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while, you, you find this, this is true, that there's a lot of things that will fight to take over those priorities. And oftentimes, they're not even bad things. You know, it's not just choosing between good and evil, but sometimes it's just choosing between good and best, like the will of God best. 
And we have to say no. And, and I found so oftentimes that my life gets out of control and, and, and just messy. And I see this in so many other people when, when we mess up that order of, instead of God, spouse, kids, church, job, we start to think, man, I really need to provide, so job. And I really need to be a good dad. I heard that, kids. I guess my wife, yeah, spouse. Church, I gotta do that. God, you know what I mean? And we miss up those priorities. Guys, this is a good opportunity for us to just think, like, are my priorities right? Is it the will of God priorities in my life? I'd encourage you to talk about that as a family. Talk about that at your connection groups. And so here's how I'll end. I'm gonna give you a little, few more practical things for you to talk about and for you to take with you. Like, how do I live in a way where I can have more confidence that I am living, as James says here, in the will of God? How can, I, how can I practically do that? And so four things, okay? This isn't like a false ending, like you have like 30 more minutes, okay? But four quick things, okay? Number one, how do you do this? Be saturated with Scripture. Be saturated with Scripture. That we can't know God's will if we don't know God's Word. You can't. He speaks to us through this. We get to know the God that created us. We get to know his plans for our life. Be saturated. It's not just listening to podcasts or politics or different commentaries, but it's listening to God. And we use this plumb line all the time that if you prick us, we bleed Bible. This is because we want the word of God that we know him. We know his plans. We know his purposes. We know his decrees. And we can follow him. We need God's word if we want to know God's will. Be saturated with scripture. Number two, this one's a hard one. Be humble. Okay? We know from the Bible, God opposes the proud. Because we we need to fight for the right perspective of, of who we are. That even if you are extremely talented, I mean, you're brilliant, you get a ton of stuff done, you have a crazy high capacity, you're amazing. You're not God. I'm not God. None of us know everything. And part of being humble is to seek wise counsel. Godly people who will invite you into their life that you can entrust your decision-making with. All right, this could be a, a godly parent. This could be church leaders. This could be someone in your connection group. It's people who, who love Jesus, love you, and they've got expertise in in a part of life that you need to grow in. And you approach these people and you ask questions and you take notes and you seek counsel and you listen and you do it. I mean, one of the things that I love most about my wife is that she is so humble and she does this. I mean, I've watched her. I watch her meet with like other women, older women. And if you ever see my wife, she, for some reason, like the whole technology thing hasn't caught on, so she has like legal pads. And she just walks around and she walks in with like questions and she asks questions and then I watch her speak to these older women and just like writes down what they say and she's taking notes and she's like, she's not afraid to say, I don't know what to do. Like, how do I be a good wife? How do I deal with my husband? Because he's great, but he's a pain, right? And then she takes notes. Oh, okay, right? This is what he's talking about. Humble. The Bible is very clear that the fool is the one who is always right in their own eyes. And many of us, it makes us uncomfortable to sit before somebody and ask for advice and counsel because it says, I don't know everything. Be humble. 
Number three, ask God to empower you. Right? The Holy Spirit of God is the one who has come to take residence in you to inform you and empower your life just as he did Jesus. Paul says this in, in Romans 8.11, that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is living in you. And the Holy Spirit will, will lead you and guide you in truth and wisdom and he will empower you to live like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus. And so we ask him for that and say, Jesus, I hear you. On my own, the words of John 15 should be floating in our head. Apart from you, I literally can do nothing. And so Jesus, empower me by your spirit through your grace to walk in holiness and be like you. So we're saturated in scripture, humble, asking God to help and empower us. And then four, with all that, here's what you do. You plan on your knees. Plan on your knees. Prayerfully, open-handedly saying, if the Lord wills. God, I, I have these, this time, I have this talent, I have this treasure. What is it that I should be doing? What would bring you glory? What would bring others good? It's all about the glory of God, doxa. This is our name, doxa, glory, to remind us it's not about us. It's all about Jesus and his glory. Because I, I pray that we would all do this. And as we do, that Jesus would be made much of through our lives and throughout this city we would see people come to know him. We would be serving like Jesus. Our life is a mist. Let's use it well. Let's use it in a way that glorifies and honors God. Let's pray. God, thanks for, for James. I feel like, man, every time I preach from James every time I study this I feel like I need to put on like a football helmet and pads because you're just coming at me it can be tempting to think that and it's all about just tasks and doing and doing and doing and doing but no you're a good father you're giving us truth to inform us to help us to have to find to live in the life that you've created us for and so God would you help us to take James' words here and do what he says in chapter one, not just hear them, but do them. Because we know, as James tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's then when we will be blessed and when we hear from you and respond to you. And so, Father, help us be this type of person. Help us to be this type of church. And I pray that even as James talks about just like knowing what to do and then doing it, God, for those of us who maybe don't know Jesus, that this would be the day that we would know that we have sin in our life that is keeping us from you, but this would be the day that we come to you, give you our sin, that you would give us eternal life. God, would that just happen? God, help us to be this type of people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite you guys to stand and we're gonna continue in worship.